tongue today. We praise your holy name and thank you that through Jesus Christ, every believer in this room is justified once and for all by the once for all sufficient, perfect, sinless sacrifice. The blood of God's own Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, has redeemed us, His people, and established in us a church to the praise of His great name and all who share that born-again experience by the Spirit's power and by that glorious miracle of new birth. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to gather in the name of our Savior today and to learn more of His Holy Word. As we open your scriptures, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our spirit to see the absolute rule, reign, authority, lordship, and sovereignty of our God and Savior who has conquered the grave and is laying every enemy bare before Him. His sword of triumph will wield, that He wields against His enemies will take every single enemy captive unto the subduing in his footstool, the enemies, until such time as the kingdom of this world, every last one, becomes the kingdom of our God and he reigns forever and ever. Lord, we look forward to that day. In the meantime, as ambassadors of this great king and kingdom, I pray that you would allow us through the eyes of faith the opening power of the Spirit through the proclamation of the Word, to see with clarity who Christ is, what He has done, and what He will do, and that we, in the meantime, will proclaim His rights and advance His kingdom and the message of hope in Him to all who by the Spirit's, you, or by the Spirit's means will hear, repent, and believe in Christ alone. We pray that Christ would be magnified in the preaching of the Word today and that his saints would be edified and equipped for that call. In his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege, what a great gift it is, and immeasurably so, to be able to open up the scriptures and consider the revelation of our God. I'd encourage you to do so with me in turning to Psalm 119, second Sunday of the month, our Psalm Sunday, as we continue through this, the greatest song in all of literature, Psalm 119, that acrostic song on steroids, if you will. We'll consider today the 12th stanza under the title Lamed, our Lamed, and the subtitle, The Trial of Scheming Enemies. So this will be Psalm 119. 89 through 96 in a minute will stand. As you're turning there, let me give you an aim for today's message. My goal in preaching today is to strengthen our resolve by effective and therefore godly means. Resolve in this case, in this particular application, to face enemies and trials such as the scheming and plotting nefarious intentions of the enemies of Christ and the enemies of His church. With that introduction, your Bible, your heart open, and out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand with me today as we listen to the immutable, authoritative, and perfect Word of God. This is Psalm 119, 89 through 96. Hear now God's Word. Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The twelfth stanza, Lamed, the trial of scheming enemies. Verse 95, here is the peril and challenge, the test and trial that the psalmist faces. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, he says. Therefore, he cries out for salvation from this of his, among his many difficulties outlined throughout the course of the song. 
Let me remind you that each verse in each stanza begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This leads us to stanza 12 in our series. And each verse in the original literature, the Hebrew language, begins therefore with the 12th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And that would be Lamed. This collection of eight verses, our text today, the psalmist is reassuring his soul and thereby proclaiming to his readers, those who sing with him these words, the sufficiency of the word of God for the trial of conspiring forces, for the trial of conspiring forces motivated by wicked desire to destroy him. Of course, we have outlined that the major theme of Psalm 119 is indeed the sufficiency of God's word. And what we found after the first section is each section afterwards, 21 of them in fact, presents a trial or a difficulty that the psalmist draws upon God's word to overcome. And this morning's passage is no exception. And the trial here featured is that of scheming enemies. Those of the wicked who are motivated by the enemy's purposes and plans to destroy him and because he is aligned and an ally with the purposes of God to destroy the work of God through him as well. Verse 95 describes this threat in terms of a premeditated ambush, if you will. The wicked lie in wait to do him wrong. Examples of this type of peril appear in our recent studies of greater scripture. And for these examples, let me remind us of our Genesis series. We're at that point, in fact, one of the recent messages in the book of Genesis, chapter 37 or thereabouts, was the betrayal of Joseph. And in the case of Joseph, he is a good example of one who had enemies who betrayed him and in their premeditated ambush sought to do him wrong. Joseph, Joseph faced this kind of persecution from his scheming, jealous brothers when they stopped just short of killing him, only to throw him in a pit then, as you recall, to sell him into slavery, the enemies of God's people, even the Egyptians, and then deceiving their father along the way. And as we remarked in that message and remind ourselves today, the betrayal of one's closest companions in Joseph's experience and in the psalmist's experience as well today, these examples of trial foreshadow the betrayal of Christ himself, the son of, of uh Judah, if you will, the son of Jacob to come in the covenant line, Jesus, and also the son of God, was also betrayed at the hands of one of his closest companions, if you will, Judas, who conspired with our Lord's bitter enemies, selling him into the custody of murderers for 30 pieces of silver. Commentators have remarked if David were the author of Psalm 119, he also knows what it's like to be betrayed by those close to him. We can imagine him struggling with the betrayal of Absalom and writing this song, recognizing that his own son has risen up in his rebellion, in his hatred against the Lord's anointed, who was his own father, seeking to overthrow the throne that had been rightly anointed or given, granted by the prophet to David, his father. These are the sorts of trials that are among the most disturbing to the soul. The trauma of betrayal and the fear of plotting enemies, especially those close to you, even family members, is enough to drive one to great instability, even insanity or worse. So where is one to turn when uh, one has enemies of this sort? Not only the effects of which can be felt in our physical body, but the effects of which can be felt in our souls, in our mind, in our memories, in the traumatic psychology, or the, that's trauma affecting us, as the world might say, psychologically moving forward. Well, the psalmist models and exemplifies where to turn in situations like this as he finds hope and help from the architect of the heavens and the earth and from the architect of the covenant of eternal salvation. May we follow his lead. I'd like to read you a quote commentary on this passage. This comes from Spurgeon. He says of the 12th stanza of Psalm 119, quote, There is an analogy between the word of God and the works of God, and especially in this that they are both of them constant, fixed, and unchangeable. Did you grasp that? 
Spurgeon says there's an analogy. He draws it from this text. It's certainly correct. There's an analogy between the Word of God and the works of God, especially in that both of them are fixed, unchangeable, and constant. Just like the heavens can be counted on such that they can navigate ships today, mariners look to the stars. In some sense today, they triangulate through GPS and other means of technology according to the same fixed reference points as the ancient seagoing vessels and and sailors did. There's an analogy between this and the fixed, constant, and unchangeable certainty of God's Word. God's Word, Spurgeon goes on to say, which establishes the world is the same as that which He has embodied in the Scriptures. By the Word of God were the heavens made, and specially by Him who is emphatically the Word. He goes on, when we see the world keeping its place and all its laws abiding the same, we have herein assurance that the Lord will be faithful to His covenant and will not allow the faith of His people to be put to shame. So with that introduction, let us learn from the Lamed stanza where to turn in times of great difficulty. And here's a heading for you. Substantial reassurance comes by way of realizing the following of Yahweh. Reassurance comes by way of realizing Yahweh's number one domain, verses 89 and 90. That is the reach of the kingdom of God. Number two, His government, verses 91 and 92. Thirdly, reassurance comes by way of realizing Yahweh's deserved devotion. Deserved devotion. And finally, reassurance comes by way of realizing Yahweh's exceptional rule. First of all, His domain. There is substantial reassurance, even for the deep and abiding trauma and trial of being betrayed by those who are close to you and being threatened by scheming enemies. There is substantial reassurance when we realize the Lord's domain, Yahweh's domain. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. Where? In the heavens. Are you saying, author of Psalm 119, that the influence and reach of the power, the authority, the sovereignty, the glory, and the creative genius of our God reaches from earth, not just our life experience and human beings, but all the way into the cosmos? And of course, the resounding answer is yes, from the first page of Genesis. Recently, if you've watched the news, you've seen reports of eyesight via technology into the distant reaches of space, the James Webb Telescope or something of that nature, as revealing to us galaxies and heavenly bodies that the human eye presumably has never seen before until these moments when that information is translated via technology to your phone and you're able to see the greatness and grandeur of our God in ways that you perhaps were blind to before as we realize the scope and domain and reach of His creative power is further and more magnificent still than we could have ever imagined. And as of yet, and I suspect for the, till the end of time, we will not reach the end of the glories of God displayed in the heavens. This is the domain of our Lord. And if he has set every star and molecule, every bit of atom, every ounce of energy, every gravitational you know, pull or force or physical property of the universe into motion such as to hold it together, to display his beauty, and through our very own solar system to sustain the life-giving properties necessary that fields flourish with crops and you and I breathe oxygen maintained at these pristine levels of eco-balance, if He can do this, then He can watch over our lives to keep and to guard us, guard us against any type of enemy. Recall four elements of kingdom that we covered years ago in the book of Matthew. A kingdom is made up of a sovereign, one who is in charge, the king, of course. Subjects, those who are in submission to his rule and authority. Realm, the reach of where he governs. And law, the standard whereby he rules. And when we think of these four elements of kingdom as they pertain to our God, we ask ourselves, who is the sovereign? He is the one who has demonstrated his power in creating the domain 
of outer space, the heavens, and the celestial bodies. Turn with me to Romans 1. In a moment, we'll consider their purpose in, day one, or in the early days of creation. And who are his subjects? Well, you might think, well, I'm his subject because I am blood-bought, I'm his, I'm a Christian, I'm converted, and he has saved me, and that, of course, is true. But his subjects go beyond just those who are bound in favor with him by that covenant restored. Everyone is his subject. What re- everyone is in relationship with the Lord. You're either in good standing or you're under his judgment. There is no one who has ever been or will be born who is outside of the subject, subjugation of our King of Kings. And then we ask, well, what is the reach of his realm? Well, his majesty, power, authority, glory, and sovereignty reaches not just the far corners of this earth. You know, the habitation of mankind that we imagine and consider most of our lives and our exchanges and relationships taking, you know, the stage in which they occur, but it reaches far into the heavens as far as we can look. There our God reigns. And what is his law? What is his instructions? Well, this is what captivated the heart and fascinated the mind and dominated the meditations of the author of Psalm 119. Truly a God with a domain that reaches so great into the universe. His law, his statutes, his precepts, his commandments, his testimonies, his word must be paid attention to, must be heeded with utmost care. And that is certainly true. What are the purpose? What are the purpose of the heavens? Well, by implication, our author in Psalm 119 touches upon them, but we're reminded of them in the first pages of Genesis. We turn to Genesis 1, verse 14, and we read the following. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. The lights, the expanse of the heavens, be the sun, the moon, and the stars, and so forth. They are for what? Signs, seasons, days, and years. Furthermore, 15, And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Verse 18, To rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. The nature and purpose of the heavens is that this aspect of creation would reveal the covenant revelation of the Lord by reminding us that just as the heavens cannot be changed or shaken by the mere pitiful tools of man, just as they are immovable, immutable, so is our sovereign God. The uh, sun, the moon, and the stars, what are they? They are enduring and they are a fixed order in order to or for the purpose of ruling over day and night, years and seasons. And you could say it this way by implication and by application, just as the moral law of God, just as His Word provides the same to rule over the affairs of men. Stated again, the sun, the moon, and stars, they are the enduring and fixed order that rules over day and night, years and seasons. Just as the law of God provides the same thing, an enduring fixed order to rule over the affairs of men. So if life feels chaotic, and if you don't think there's an answer for society's ills, your own enemies and today's problems, the psalmist would have you, and the authors of Scripture, think of Abraham, would have you look to the heavens and be reminded that just as the fixed order governs these things, day and night, years and seasons, so the fixed order of His Word governs the affairs of men for all time. That doesn't mean we are without our problems. That doesn't mean the world doesn't experience the judgments and chaos that comes from abandoning Him and in our sinful rebellion, earning the consequences of our transgression of his holy law. But even those things only further emphasize, they only further evidenced that you can't break God's laws and get away with it. The chaos and, and all of the hardship and the tragedy and the fallout of our society, so far as it goes in the world and rebellion against him, is proof that deviation from the fixed order of God's law 
is, uh, will yield for us degradation, self-destruction, and judgment. Jeremiah 31, 34 through 36, the promise of salvation is given, again, in the context of the purpose for which God created the heavens and the heavenly bodies. I love this passage, and this passage ties us in with the whole scope of the scriptures revealed, all the way from creation to new creation. 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, notice that, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Hosts is his name. If this fixed order, verse 36, departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the fountains of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So you see, even with the promise of salvation declared by the prophet of old and fulfilled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the heavens are an analogy. They're proof positive to us. They're evidence to us of the fixed order in creation. They're the signature of the God who creates and recreates. And through regeneration, he grants us life eternal. And that fixed order of his salvation in Christ alone cannot be overthrown, cannot be challenged or removed by the enemies of our souls. This enduring and fixed order to rule over the day, the night, the years, the seasons that we see in the heavens above is a reminder for us that God's fixed order, satisfying the law of God through the propitiatory death of His Son to pay for our sins, is secure, unassailable, unshakable. It is steadfast, immutable, and unassailable. And so we look to the heavens and remember the promises of God. Kids, do you remember the two things that God said Abraham's children would be like? The stars, and what was the other? Sand of the seashore. So those are two things that Abraham could look at and be reminded of the promises of God. Imagine you're a tent dweller like Abraham. You have flocks and herds and like zero light pollution. So you're out in the wilderness and each night that canopy of stars and the great expanse of the Milky Way and the heavenly bodies just sing from the glorious expanse of the universe as far as Abraham's eye could see. Too many stars to count. And every day, every night, on a cloudless evening, over the wilderness of Judea, he looks up and he sees the promises of God certified in the stars that tell him that the fixed order that rules over days and seasons will fulfill his promises to him in salvation. And now we look in the mirror, saints, if you know him today, you are a grafted-in son or daughter of Abraham, so to speak. That's what the scriptures say. You are proof of that promise to Abraham even this day. And so it is in the sands of the seashore, Abraham could look. He could tell his little one, you know, Isaac, hey, count the grains of sand out there. Come back to me when you're done. And Isaac goes out there full of ambition, having just learned to count to ten. And of course, he doesn't get very far on the sands of the sea before he comes back, overwhelmed with the task that his father Abraham gave him to do, just imagining a situation. Dad, I can't do it. I don't think I ever can. That's right, son. But, you, but so it is that you will not be able to count, to count the glory and the promises of God. And it is totally beyond your and my imagination, the steadfast love and the saving work that he will perform through your sons and your sons' sons and daughters and so on and so forth until a great throng that sounds like the voice of many waterfalls as many as the sands on the sea will praise the holy name of Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God. I had an idea when I was preparing this message. Wouldn't it be cool to take the phone outside on one of these starry nights up here in northern Minnesota and do family devotions and point our children to the skies and say, remember the message to Abraham, remember the message to you and to me. Just as the order 
of these stars is so fixed and immovable that they provide a reference point for the ancient mariners and even today, so it is that the law of God is a fixed point of reference for us. I don't, I don't know how many times Abraham must have looked at the night sky and been reminded of these things, but we can do the same, can we not? This would be great, a great reminder for us, especially in the midst of trial. Because reassurance comes by way of realizing Yahweh's domain. His domain reaches into the heavens, and they bear a particular message for us. His domain also reaches to the generations. This overlaps what we were saying before, the testimony of Abraham. Verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. How would our children know the glories of God? Because they were born after we crossed the Red Sea. The early parents of the promised land might wonder. There was an answer. Passages of such as Joshua 4, 5 through 7 gave specific instructions in that regard so that the next generation and the one following would not soon forget. Here Joshua commanded the people to set up stones as an altar to remind their children and their children's children that God by His sovereign hand reached down to His domain, yes, even the earth and the Jordan River, swollen at flood stage, we presume, and touched that water and suspended for a time that ordinary properties that would not allow passage, safe passage for a million people. And just like he did in the Red Sea, God's people entered the threshold of the promised land on dry ground prepared by the one who by the word of his power put every one of those billion, trillion, however many galaxies in place on day four of creation. And here he is guiding his people by the hand, as it were, across the Jordan River, across the Red Sea, into his promises. The next generation would realize this when faithful parents would point to those altar stones. Where do we point, parents? When you open up the scriptures in the evening, read them to your wife, husbands, read them to your children, husbands and wives. Where are you pointing your family? To the altar stones. Why do we go to church every Sunday? Why do we suspend our ordinary schedule once a week to make time for worshiping with the people of God? The answer is the same as the reason those altar stones stood on the banks of the Jordan, to remind the next generation to tell them of the domain of our Lord, the fixed order of His creation and His law. And by these standards, everyone falls short. But through Jesus Christ, the Joshua to come, salvation was made across the water that our sin deserved through the ark door of Jesus Christ unto salvation in the promised land of eternity reconciled with a holy God through the blood of the sacrifice, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And thus the generations are encouraged with the same messages of old, but given even more weight as we see them fulfilled in Christ. This is the domain of our God. It reaches from heaven to earth and across the generations by, means of, by the means that he has prescribed. Furthermore, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. So the success, uh, successive lineage of all humanity are under the sovereign control of God. The heavens are his. The earth is his. Is there anything that escapes his rule and attention? No, there is not. This is the reassurance that comes by way of realizing Yahweh's domain. Man's habitation on this earth is at the complete and total mercy of his landlord. You know, you might find a home for sale, and it's beautiful, it's palatial, it's like 5,000 square feet it's over here on one of the desirable lakes in the region, and you might move right in. That doesn't mean it's yours. As soon as the owner or the realtor or somebody with some authority recognizes that you're squatting in that place, pretty soon there'll be lights and signs in the driveway and you'll be ushered off that property. Why? Because you don't own it. It's not yours. You don't have a legitimate claim. Your name is not on the deed. So it is with the earth. Men in their rebellion, in their unbelief, are squatters. Yet one day the Lord will come and he will ask them, as it were, on the day of judgment, Where's your title deed to this land? You know, all this earth and its fullness is mine. 
You know, have you acknowledged me and what do you have to show for using my resources, breathing my air? And I'll tell you, the answer that will not fly on that day is, I thought it all just came about when nothing exploded and a fish grew legs and here I am. Won't fly on Judgment Day. The Lord will say, as Gene has been preaching from Romans 1, you are without excuse. Creation itself, the expanse of the heavens, the reaches of the eyesight of the James Webb telescope prove to you with your technology even more than the ancients that there is a God, that his fixed order governs the world and his fixed moral order governs your lives, will your life. Where do you stand in relationship to him? This is what the reckoning of judgment day will establish. And if we stand before the Lord and we have the blood of Jesus to appeal to, we will hear that welcoming door open come into the sweet fellowship of eternal life. But if we have anything else to present to the Lord as a means of justification, we will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And this is the reality of the domain of the Lord. We might live like squatters, we might pretend we own the place, but that's just the arrogance of modern man. One day he will answer for his use of God's resources and for everything that he's done. And on that final day, where will he stand? There's only one way to be in right relationship. That reassurance comes first by realizing Jesus is Lord. He owns everything. And you, in your human habitation, are at the mercy of your landlord. Have you acknowledged him? Have you sought his favor? Have you cried out to him for salvation? If you have not, do so today. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Major point number two, reassurance comes by way of realizing Yahweh's government. Not only is his domain completely exhausted, but his government is precise, final, ultimate, sovereign. By your appointment, they, the world and the heavens, stand this day, for all things are your servants. There is a substantial reassurance that the believer can find when he faces enemies that threaten life and limb, even or that threaten his peace of mind. And this substantial reassurance comes from realizing that not only does the Lord's domain reach from heaven to earth, but that his government is perfect. What is appointment in this sense? It is the command of God and the, the, the decree of our Lord that every physical property obey his every command. That atom, that the electrons revolve around the nucleus of every single atom. That trees respond to the nutrients in the soil and the photosynthesis and so forth and produce carbon or oxygen and use that carbon as food. And that ecosystem continues. That the clouds drop rain when they are heavy laden and that soil or springs forth in new life when the precipitation falls upon the fertile field. All of these elements of creation are by the appointment, by the decree of our God. We see this clearly in the book of Job. Who owns the lock and key to the storehouses of snow or precipitation that causes the earth to bud and to bloom? It is the appointment. It's the government of our God. The decree of the sovereign from creation to providence, which is sustaining all things for his namesake. Even the, uh, the balance that is necessary for life. And now, in, even as modern science progresses, the fine-tuning of the universe is a term that is sometimes used in astrophysics and so forth, cosmology and cosmogony, the origin and sustenance and the explanation of the universe. There's something of a fine-tuning that even the unbeliever now recognizes. But he is just more culpable if he doesn't realize where that fine-tuning comes from. Does fine-tuning not speak of a fine-tuner? Of course it does. It is the sovereign who has appointed by his command the physical properties and the moral order of his entire universe. The decree of the sovereign comes by way of creation, providence, and the eschaton, which means the fulfillment of all history unto his glory, the purpose for which all human events are headed. This is the appointment of our Lord. His government is also recognized by the author in terms of lordship, by your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. All things? Yes, all things. This deals with that subject's element of kingdom. All things are your subject. Even our enemies, even that which would threaten our life or our soul or our future, 
or the economy or the stability of our society, our government and so forth. All things are your servants. That is correct. Now, it so happens that since the fall, creation obeys the Lord much more completely and uniformly than his moral agents do. Sinners are rebellious and the heavens put us to shame. We are inconsistent. We don't follow the Lord as we ought. We don't obey him with consistency. We are a different kind of created being. We are a creature made in the image of God. We're a moral agent. But let me tell you, even the sinner is a servant to the Lord. We see this in the book of Genesis in the story of Joseph. Things that his brothers meant for evil served the purposes and appointment of God and God used them for good. And of course, chiefly at the cross, the sinners that were assembled by the sovereignty of God to crucify the Lord of glory was the very instrument in the hands of the Almighty to slay his son, Isaiah 53, as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. You serve the Lord in glorifying him in your forever judgment if you die without repenting. Or you serve the Lord by crying out to his son and trusting him in his blood to save you and then joyfully embracing the calling of loving and obeying the precepts, the law, the testimonies, the commandments, and the word of our Lord. Recognize that the, this reassurance, nevertheless, comes by way of the domain of recognizing the domain of the Lord and his government. He governs by appointment. All things are his servants, and all is ordered as far as his moral agents are concerned, according to his law. Psalm 92, or 119.92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. God's law is the key to life. In some sense, there's a connection between the two. The psalmist recognizes this. He realizes that the God who governs the universe and has firmly fixed the heavens has also done so by his law, which is to order his life and his affairs. This brings up point number three. Substantial reassurance comes by way of realizing Yahweh's domain. Secondly, the Lord's government. And thirdly, deserved devotion. So in light of all we've said thus far, how ought we respond? Well, the psalmist exemplifies a worthy response when he says that the Lord's law has been his delight in verse 92. Furthermore, 93, he says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. It says 94, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. And then 95, the wicked lie and wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. What is the devotion that this sovereign creator of salvation and of all the universe is deserving of? Delight, remembrance, seeking, and considering. Perhaps we could summarize. I delight in your law. I remember your precepts, the psalmist says. I seek, furthermore, your precepts, and I consider your testimonies. So given this revelation, the psalmist models a worthy response, delighting in God's law. This is connected to a testimony of God's mercy. By your appointment, or if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So you see the chain here. There's a delight in the law of Lord, and there's a testimony of his mercy. The psalmist was spared destruction by the grace of God, and that grace manifests itself in a changing desire to love, to appreciate, and to delight in God's word. What kind of destruction? might befall us when we're facing affliction and we don't realize the weight of God's law. Well, what kind of affliction was the psalmist facing? As we said before, he says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. So he's surrounded by enemies. He certainly feels the weight of this. He's crying out for salvation. And he says, under these conditions, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The law of God has preserved the psalmist in this way. It has spared him the destruction that comes from vain promises of help and hope that sound plausible in our despair 
but lead to our own destruction. And this, there's a, there's a range of this. Everything from idols that will come in and, and tell us that they'll take care of us, everything from the promises of health and well-being that the government and candidates who you know, advocate on our behalf, seek to secure for their, through their power and through taxation, everything from that all the way to suicide. Why do I bring up suicide? Well, think about it. If you are under the threat of destruction and you do not consider God's law, the short-sighted hope and help that your despair could lead you to is any kind of idol all the way up to and considering taking your own life. Life is too, The weight of the fallenness of this world, the consequences of sin, and the difficulties of this fallen world they are a burden too big for the human psyche to bear. Full stop. Why do the New does the New Testament encourage and adjure the reader through the words of Jesus Christ? Cast your cares upon me. Take upon yourself my burden, which is easy, my yoke, and, a, and, and there you will find rest for your souls. The reason is, is because the weight of this world, the enemies within that attack our soul and at times without, that attack our physical being, are too great a burden for us to bear. But we have one who bears that burden in our place. The law of God gives us instructions to turn from idols and to delight in what God has said is righteous and true. And to, even in the times when it is most difficult to order our lives, our decisions, and our affections, our goals, our purposes in living, and our intentions according to that fixed moral order, things like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, least of all yourself, shalt not covet, don't take the Lord's name in vain, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long on the earth. Do not make unto the Lord any graven, graven image. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. So on and so forth. If we delight in these things, and we, our devotion is involved in realizing the weight and the beauty and the, the ingenious nature that God has ordered His promises and His commands, then these, this deserved devotion, on account of the genius of His law, will carry us through difficult times. And that delight in the Word of God will spare us in moments of deep affliction. Furthermore, remembering the precepts, and here this is tied to grace, not only spared from that which He deserved, destruction, perishing, but getting that which He does not, which is the definition of grace in short, 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. So herein is the gospel, 92 and 93. So you have spared me from perishing, and you have given me life. And the psalmist recognizes, therefore, that he should be devoted to the Lord, to delight in His law, and to remember His precepts. To seek those precepts, to set his attention and affections on understanding and loving the Word of God. These are the true treasures that analogy is often used in Scripture as well, in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Job, to recognize the priceless value of God's Word, His principles, His precepts, the commandments, testimonies, the statute, and law of our God. And as we seek these things, we find refuge for our soul and understanding of life. We begin to have categories to interpret the circumstances in which we live. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I certainly have. It is much easier to negotiate the chaos of a fallen world when we recognize that our God is sovereign and that the consequences of sin affirm the certainty of His law. And though we, we may be living in a time where it seems like wickedness reigns, as we reap the bitter fruits of the wicked seeds that we have sown to the flesh, we recognize this is all according to God's purposes. The judgment or destruction of the wicked it, it confirms the Word of God every bit as much as the blessing and the grace that the righteous enjoy uh, through salvation. Thus, we delight in Him, we remember Him, we seek Him, and we consider 
his testimonies. In seeking the Lord's precepts, the psalmist cries out for salvation. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. This is a cry that's echoed eight other times. By my count in this particular psalm, verse 41, 81, 117, 123, 146, 155, 166, 174, all are a cry for salvation. The psalmist recognizes in the 21 trials and more that he outlines in the passage that he is desperately in need of divine intervention, and without, and without that, he will perish. He recognizes that the shortcomings of his soul, that his transgression of God's law, has put him in desperate need of a Savior. And those enemies without also create a circumstance in which he is wholly and completely dependent on his Lord. And thus he cries out in this entreaty, save me. So he's seeking the Lord, he's remembering him, he's delighting in him, and he's considering the Lord's testimonies. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Think of the many enemies that Joseph faced. We move further through his story and we recall the temptation of Potiphar's wife. The easy thing, you know, would have spared him prison and given him a good time, the world would tell us, to simply give in to the advances of Potiphar's wife, that wayward woman. But no, because Joseph had considered the testimonies of the Lord, because he had sought his precepts, because he loved his law, even though in the short term it seemed a lose-lose, he resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife and was thrown into prison. We take great faith to take this road less traveled. But you know the rest of the story. Joseph didn't at the time. He had to proceed in faith. But we know that God used the virtue of this man, the Spirit's work in him, to be an instrument of salvation for the covenant family. And without his preservation from famine of that covenant line, the Messiah would not have come to us. And thus the glories of God's purposes, when we have faith in his testimonies and precepts, are illustrated for us in Scripture and are there for us to consider, to be reassured in our own difficulties and challenges, that though it may seem a high cost in the short term, there are glories that await those who obey the word of God. That obedience stems from hearts changed by the power of the gospel to walk in a manner worthy of our call. Final point today, we're considering substantial reassurance by way of Yahweh's domain, by way of realizing His government, by way of realizing the deserved devotion that He commands, and finally, His exceptional rule. Verse 96, the psalmist says, I've seen a limit to all perfections, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. This is a commentary on the glory and the extent, the genius, the applicability of the Word of God. There's a comparative advantage that the psalmist recognizes. What do we mean by this? Well, he's looked at every other thing, every other substitute for the law of God, and he recognizes a limit in all of them. You know, even if you had the ideal expression of the Bill of Rights and individual liberty, even if you had a constitution that covered all of the loopholes and was written to a T, that was a, just a genius representation of a well-ordered society. If that constitution, as it were, does not reside in the hearts and the values of the individuals in that nation, you get a, circum a circumstance akin to our own, where because something on paper is not treasured in the heart, it carries almost no weight or value or consequence. There's a limit to what a constitution can do. Those of us, you know, well-meaning conservatives uh, pound the podium and say, we need to get back to the constitution. Well, the psalmist has recognized that there's a limit to the perfection of any human order. But, he says, on the other hand, your commandment is exceedingly broad. All ways and means of man, men, all uh, devices and designs and architects for human organization or preserving the best possible circumstances, given the resources that we have to work with, best case scenario, they all have their limit. They all, in the end, prove insufficient. But there is one thing that is sufficient for every challenge that it faces, 
And that is the abiding theme of Psalm 119, the Word of God. The psalmist says, by contrast, your commandment is exceedingly broad. As he wraps up his uh, section here, stanza 12, he has opened it with this acknowledgement that the Lord is forever. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed. It's eternal. And he closes it by extolling its universal application. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. It is eternal and it is applicable and relevant in every age for all people and in every circumstance and situation. And he knows this in part because he's seen uh, comparatively other attempts at solving problems, other promises of hope and help, other means of salvation under duress. And he has seen that those claims of hope, those perfections, the best that man can come up with, they all have their limit. They all fall short, just like we do, falling short of the glory of God. So our schemes also fall short of what Uh, of what is gloriously laid out in the scripture, namely his commandments. But by contrast to this, he recognizes that the commandment of the Lord is exceedingly broad. It has universal application. Is there a sin? Is there a social ill? Is there anything that in the human experience that God's word is not equipped to deal with? The answer is unequivocal no. But is that the conviction of the church today? It's certainly not the conviction of the world. But it's too frequently in a church even that we overlook or discount or marginalize the broadness of the commandment of the Lord. There are many who who hold that the Bible has not that much to say about how a civil society should be organized. After all, they say the civil law has died, rendered obsolete with the closing of the chapter of national theocratic Israel. Is that true? I heard a pastor saying that recently as I was listening to his message, and I was pretty discouraged upon hearing it. But then, gloriously, he contradicted himself later and said, however, there is such a thing as the civil application of the moral law of God. And our nation and every nation is bound to that standard. Well, to that I can say amen. What he had taken away in the first phrase He granted it again with the second, and I believe that's where our conviction should lie. I don't care exactly how you describe it, so long as you hold to the conviction that the word of God is sufficient for ordering the affairs of men, and that there is a universal standard and commandment, and it is sufficient for all problems that we face, whether they be personal or whether they be uh, a social uh, application. This is the exceptional rule of the Lord. The weight and the breadth and the glory and the power and the riches, inestimable riches, of the commandments that the psalmist recognizes. And he knows that these things provide for him reassurance no matter what trials he faces. So let us remember the same. Let us close in prayer, praying that we do so. Dear Lord, we thank you for the reassurances found in your scripture, that your domain and your government the devotion you deserve and your exceptional rule grant for us peace of mind, stability of soul, and a firm conviction that your word is sufficient. If we are tempted, Lord, to uh, sell you short in any, uh, in any way in this regard, I pray that the preaching of the scriptures today would provide conviction, repentance for us, that we would acknowledge with the psalmist that forever your word is firmly fixed in the heavens that you would work in us a devotion to you, that we might delight, remember, seek, and consider your scriptures as many days as you give us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.